Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, this year's annual meeting in Davos of the World Economic Forum is entitled Cooperation in a Fragmented World, and it takes place from the 16th to the 20th of January. It brings together 2,700 leaders from 130-plus countries, including 52 heads of state. And when I was looking on site, you either get an invite to this forum, and it costs around $70,000 to $130,000 to attend. So it's not cheap. And many question the overall value of the conference. Now, of course, there are some good things that come out of the conference. And Klaus Schwab, who founded and is executive chair of the World Economic Forum, has certainly put a lot of effort into developing this particular conference in the ski resort of Davos. As the crises and deepening divisions continue, we see fragmentation and a geopolitical landscape full of disruption. The conference aim is to address people's immediate critical needs and to lay the groundwork for more sustainable, resilient futures by the end of this decade. And clearly there are erosions of trust which are mentioned in the statement from the conference. And this is the 53rd annual meeting and it's trying to focus on solutions between public and private cooperation to tackle the world's most pressing challenges. And there are lots of those. If you think about the difficulties with regard to energy, climate, the natural, physical world, investment, trade and infrastructure, not to mention the new technologies and, of course, industry resilience, jobs, skills, social mobility, health and much more. There are about 1,500 leaders registered to attend 700 organisations, including 600 of the world's top CEOs, according to the publicity. Supply chains, of course, are at the centre of change. Many of the changes that we need to put in place revolve around supply chains. If we think about the changes to CO2 emissions and other harmful pollutants that enter the atmosphere, many of those emerge from supply chain activity, whether that be production or distribution. And Many of the challenges that we face with regard to things like packaging and removing plastic from the oceans of the world and the rivers come down to rethinking packaging. It's crazy that we've moved to more and more plastic packaging when you think about it. In a retro world, 50 years ago, we had paper bags. Then we replaced all those paper bags with plastic. We replaced all the internal packaging in boxes where we used to put paper or cardboard, with plastic, with bubble wrap. We replaced all kinds of food product wrappings with plastic. And so a lot of damage to our environment has come from human activity and, in many respects, what's become a throwaway society, where we've put all of these things into our packaging, into our deliveries, into our manufacturing, and it's a serious issue. So how do we rethink the next 10, 20 years to take that waste material out of our physical environment? Well, it's 
part of the agenda at Davos, but it goes beyond Davos. It's an everybody responsibility. And if we don't change our behaviours, then of course that pollution will eventually kill the planet, the people and the animals. The World Economic Forum has published a five-step guide to shape the future of global industrial strategies. And this is a very interesting, talks about accelerating the progress towards sustainable development goals, SDG 9, encompassing industry, innovation and infrastructure. says that they're the blueprint to address major global challenges from climate change to hunger. And they talk about building resilience and sustainability into industrial supply chains, growing a workforce that's fit for the future. And there's a great article which you might want to drop by and read on the World Economic Forum annual meeting site. They say that they say that building resilience and sustainability into industrial supply chains is essential. Global supply chains that underpin the modern industrial landscape are at the centre of everything. And globalisation, of course, has allowed every country or region to share the value chain to some extent. And countries tend to work on David Ricardo's notion of comparative advantage to focus on their particular unique character and strengths to achieve an advantage. But of course, all the disruption in supply chains has brought attention to the fact how interdependent the whole world is and has become as a result of these extended global supply chains. And supply chains have to be fair, they have to be resilient, they have to be sustainable. And what's happened in the globalization of supply chains, of course, is the fact that we've introduced exploitation into those supply chains. There's always exploitation, of course, whether it's on a local or a global scale. But global supply chains have perhaps highlighted it. I mean, one of the most interesting eye-openers for me was when I worked in the global textile and clothing industry, seeing how retailers developed their supply chains and procurement processes to essentially lower their labour cost by extending those supply chains around the globe to enjoy low labour costs in the production centres while they shipped those goods at considerable expense to the retail markets of the world and earned much higher profits. Now, there's nothing wrong with earning higher profits and there's nothing wrong with lowering your cost, but there is something unethical about exploitation. And it's how we clean the supply chains, not just in the sense of being green, efficient and lowering emissions, which of course is important, but also in ensuring that the people who produce the goods get fair pay for the work they do. So fairness, resilience and sustainability are at the heart of what we should be thinking in supply chains. And all the talk about ensuring supply chains are ethical, it really comes down to governance of those supply chains. Can we ensure that those supply chains have governance that cleans up the supply chain relationships so that people in a supply chain are not at the centre of exploitative practices? We're also in a world of change with technology as we move to a more digital world which has brought many benefits. We're also at great risk from that digital world from things such as cybersecurity and from marginalising, of course, the people who don't have access to the technology, either because it's too expensive or they don't have the skills to employ it effectively 
in their life, in their work, in their business developments. So there's a great role for education as well in this developing digital world. Manufacturing firms, which we might consider digitally advanced, are less than 20% of all the firms in the world. So that means that 80% or more of businesses, organizations around the world are not digitally advanced. They may be automated in some way, but the vast majority, 70 plus percent, still operate in an analog and simple state of manual production and have not moved to take advantage of the new technologies. So how do we spread those smart manufacturing practices to developing economies to enable the world to become more competent and to give people better lives because it's about giving people more opportunities and better life experiences. Well, the way to do that is, of course, to upskill workforces of the future. And that's the third point that the report on industrial strategy makes for the World Economic Forum. Clearly, there's going to be a change in the mix of skills required by manufacturers. And if you think it's changing fast at the moment, well, it's got to change even faster. In the Industrial Strategy Report, top 10 skills of 2025 are listed. They revolve around problem solving, self-management, working with people, technology use and development. And the 10 skills are analytical thinking and innovation, active learning and learning strategies, complex problem solving, critical thinking and analysis, creativity, originality and initiative, leadership and social influence, technology use, monitoring and control, technology design and programming, resilience, stress, tolerance and flexibility, and reasoning, problem solving and ideation. That's from the Future of Jobs Report 2020 produced by the World Economic Forum. Number four in the industrial strategy is expediting decarbonisation and advancing climate action. Resilience requires environmental sustainability and we need to tackle the impact of climate change, what that's doing to the physical world and the impact it could have on the economic world and the social world, our world in other words, that we live in. These aren't separate worlds, they're all interconnected, aren't they? A green industrial strategy is necessary And they talk about decoupling economic growth from carbon-intensive activities. Well, easier said than done, of course. And as somebody pointed out, when you have a big forum, like the one in Davos, lots of private jets fly in. So what kind of carbon footprint does that do? Because you could do that kind of forum differently, couldn't you? That could be a starting point. We could switch to greener fuels. They talk about green steel and green cement, meaning that it's produced with non-carbon or lower carbon emissions. And that's certainly the case. And they also want to integrate sustainability as a core business goal. But while we try to move to this new world, the carbon creation and the fossil fuel use continues. And of course, we know that the lesser developed parts of the world, as they develop, will use more carbon to develop. And particularly countries where they have lots of carbon fuel, but they don't have the technology or the investment to produce lesser polluting fuels, will continue to use fossil fuel, oil, coal, and that will continue to damage everybody's potential future. 
And we've tackled these questions in all kinds of debates and discussions, for example, at COP, in various meetings of the United Nations, in various government meetings. But how do we get people to reduce those carbon emissions when people can't afford to pay for their daily existence? There are still many people in this world that live on less than $1 a day. The challenges are immense. In 2020, only 53% of the world's population had access to digital technologies. And it gets worse if you look at the world's poorest populations. Only 16% had access to digital technologies. So the scale of change required is great. It will require a great deal of investment And that will have to be both public and private investment into an economy to develop those digital skills. And the criteria by which judgments are made will depend on how much digital skill is already in the economy, the regulatory stability and predictability of an economy, the regulatory framework, does it support the development at national and local level? Is it joined up in its thinking? The availability of venture capital, financial and fiscal incentive to generate investors' interest, and the presence of clusters, incubators, or innovation hubs, the cost of internet data, and of course support from the government, other than incentives. Is the government on board for the change that's necessary? You need the digital infrastructure to be there. There needs to be digital adoption. There needs to be a need for the digital transformation that's happening. And of course, There needs to be digital direct investment from whatever source, be it local, national, international. So in other words, we have to have digital friendly investment environments if it's going to happen. Single use plastic is dominant. It's everywhere in many aspects of our lives. As I mentioned earlier, in all the packaging, we've switched to plastic. There's a lot more than there was 50 years ago. And of course, we replaced all kinds of containers. We used to have glass. Now we've got plastic. And it's difficult to get rid of. Plastic use is expected to increase to 1.2 billion tonnes by 2060, which would threaten the whole ecosystem and, of course, impact climate change. So we need to reduce our plastic consumption and we need innovative circular solutions which can bring down consumption We've got plastic bags, plastic bottles, once a rarity, now ubiquitous, everywhere. Single-use plastic is all over the earth. It's in the oceans, it's on the land. And it's difficult to handle and deal with. It's a planetary health risk. Half of global plastic production is for single use. And 14% of plastic packaging is collected for recycling. So the numbers are all wrong. If we look at the numbers, they're out of balance. We should be using less plastic. We should be dealing with more plastic waste and recycling where we can to reduce the impact of plastic. In the United States, only about 5 or 6% of municipal plastic waste was recycled in 2021. And that's despite people making efforts to actually separate out plastic waste. Most of it still goes to landfill, it's incinerated, or it's in the ocean. Or worse, it's on land just drifting about in heaps. We can't just recycle our way out of the plastic problem. We have to reduce it. So we have to reduce, reuse and recycle a lot more. And there are big problems with major corporations 
such as Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, where they use vast amounts of plastic packaging for the drinks business. And those large companies need to do much more to really face up to the challenges of reducing plastic waste. It's all very well having targets and talking about it, but they have to have actions that reduce it. It's like all problems. The first thing you have to do is develop metrics to understand the problem. And once you've got the numbers, you can start to take the action. But it's pretty simple in one sense, because we know we can't go on using as much plastic as we do. And we need to take active steps to reduce the consumption of plastic. Businesses have an important role to play. Governments too have an important role to play. Citizens have an important role to play. But it can't all be down to the individual. It has to be down to those big decision makers who provide all the plastic to us. It has to be cleaned out of the supply chains and it has to go much lower. We need better alternatives. I've noticed in the past year some of the packages I get delivered are made not out of plastic, but out of a synthetic type of material, but they use biodegradable corn or something similar. And that's a big improvement on the previous plastic offering. We have to ask hard questions. Do we actually need all the packaging we have in the first place? If we need it, we need to think of smarter ways to make it. As car production has switched to electric vehicles, we need different sorts of components to go in the car. And many of those components are made from rare earth metals. And of course, we need batteries and battery technology to drive the electrics in the car. And so we need lithium. And I was reminded as I read through some of the papers on the World Economic Forum that 75% of lithium has an end use in batteries. And the demand, of course, for lithium has increased substantially. The biggest producers of lithium, Australia, 52%, Chile, 25%, and China, 13%, and then a raft of others, Argentina, 6%, Brazil, 1%, Zimbabwe, Portugal, United States, 1%, and the rest of the world, 0.1%. And the numbers in themselves are quite interesting. China is the third largest producer, and it's acquired about 5.6 billion dollars worth of lithium assets in countries like Chile, Canada and Australia in the last decade. It also hosts 60% of the world's refining capacity for batteries. So it's a big player in this market. And lithium goes into other products too. It doesn't just go into batteries. It goes into ceramics and glass, lubricating greases, air treatment, continuous casting and various other products. So it has quite a lot of different end uses. The demand for lithium is projected to reach 1.5 million tonnes by 2025 and over 3 million tonnes by 2030. So it's almost an insatiable demand for lithium. And you can't help but think that all this change at once is a massive stress on the world's resources and indeed on production capacity. The change perhaps needed to be handled differently. As a consumer, on the consumer side of this, I just think, how are we going to all switch everything to electric? And that's what's proposed by many governments. Their solution is to switch everything to electric supply. Inevitably, the energy providers and the makers of 
in-demand products are seeing opportunities for profit. The world needs about 2 billion electric vehicles to get to net zero. But the question is, is there enough lithium and capacity to manufacture batteries? And of course, it's not just a capacity to produce all these electric cars or electric vehicles that they issue with the batteries. What do you do with the battery at the end of its life? Well, you have to have ways to recycle, reuse materials in the battery if you can. So there's a waste product that has to be considered in the development and cost of electric vehicles. And when we think about the supply chain, it's not just the supply chain in making products anymore, but in disposing of products. The costs of disposal at the end of useful life for lots of products and materials and material components in products can be very expensive. Just moving them around, moving these things around, costs money. And that's all factored in to the original cost when setting prices. It's one of the reasons, of course, why electric vehicles are much more expensive than combustion engine cars. Often when we recycle products, for instance, a vehicle battery from an electric car, 60% of the cost can be for the recycling process itself. And 40% of that cost is simply moving the battery from where it is to where it needs to be recycled. So transport cost. We create about 57 million tonnes of electronic waste, e-waste as it's called, every year. That's about 7 kilograms for everyone on the planet. E-waste of course comes in all shapes and sizes. From our mobile, tablets, phones, iPads, computers, TVs, to the components in electric cars. So there's all types of e-waste. But what's common in all of those e-waste items is that they contain metals such as nickel, cobalt, and of course lithium, amongst others, which we can reuse if we can harvest them and recycle them. And many people think that that's something that has to be done as we move into this new generation of electric vehicles, that we have to become much more savvy and smart at recycling materials. It's no longer sufficient to simply go and do the easy thing. And I say easy because it's relatively easy compared to than harvesting metals from e-waste. And that's because we can simply go to a clean site, dig out all the materials we require and process them, assuming we've got processing capacity. Whereas it's messy to get back all the products we no longer want to use and strip them of their component parts. But we need an industry to be built around doing that rather than mining raw materials. Reprocessing is the future. And that deals with the waste problem. Well, that's it for this special edition on the World Economic Forum. And I'd encourage you to go along to the World Economic Forum website and take a look at some of the articles up there on lots of different issues related to supply chains and how we can build a better future for all of us. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Now, see you in the next episode. So bye for now.
The Chain Reaction Podcast is written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains, and we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon, all things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.